I've already done it, so we praise the Lord for that. Well, so we have, um, obviously, uh, Jeff is gone today, Wayne is gone today, but we're still having church, so thanks for showing up. <laughs> we're still going to see what, see what the Lord shows us, and man, listen, I just, the, the acoustic praise set, that was awesome, I appreciate that, I just, I just got to say, like, when I grow up, I want to be a Roth boy. Did, like, did you see Nick playing three instruments? He had like both hands going and a foot. And, like, and then Ben's over there just like, I mean like Ben's the coolest brother I know. <laughs> strumming that bass, man. Just plucking or strumming. I don't even know what it is. Like, seriously, Ben Roth is, like, it's either him or Ryan Beach. I don't know. Those are the two coolest guys I know. It's a, it's a, it's a battle uh, to the end. But hey, if you have your Bibles with you this morning, I invite you to turn with me to Genesis chapter 22. Genesis 22. And today we are embarking on a new series that will take us through the remainder of the summer. And in this series, we're going to be focusing on the love of God. And, I mean, seriously, what a, what a topic that is. Obviously, we could talk about the love of God for months, for years, it should be to us, all at the very same time, encouraging, humbling, motivating, you name your ing word. And I, I say that it should be that way to you, but it, I guess it should only be that way to you if you've experienced it. If you have experienced God's love personally, there is no greater thing in this life. There is no greater thing for you personally than the love of God. And I say that because it is a love that provides substitutionary atonement for sin. Because as the most popular verse in the Bible, John 3, 16 says, For God so loved the world that he gave. And listen to what he gave. His only begotten son. And he did that for a very specific purpose. The whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. And that's amazing. That is amazing. I want you to think about it for just a minute. Because in the deepest and most incredible expression of God's love, he sent his own son to die for the sins of the world. That is how he manifested his love to us, to send his son to die for you, and for me, that's what the Apostle John tells us in his first epistle as well. In 1 John chapter 4, verses 7 through 10, John says, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is of God, and everyone that loveth is born of God and knoweth God. He that loveth not knoweth not God, for God is love. In this, in God's love, it was manifested, in this, was manifested the love of God toward us because that God sent his only begotten Son into the world that we might live through him. And herein is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. You see, these verses explain to us why we need to understand the love of God. Because if you don't understand it, then you don't understand the complete gospel. He gave because he loves, because he is love. And that love was manifested to us at Calvary. And you have to understand the complete gospel. Because not only is it our means to salvation, it is also our mission in this life. Sharing that love of God through the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ to the world. That's what we're here to do. And when we share his love for us with others, it shows him the love that we have for him. Amen. If you continue in this passage, we started just a second ago in 1 John chapter 4, you see this explained further. Starting down in verse 17, John says, Herein is our love made perfect that we may have boldness in the day of judgment, because as he is, so are we in this world. There's no fear in love, but perfect love casteth out fear, because fear hath torment. He that feareth is not made perfect in love. We love him because he first loved us. So not only 
do we get to share his love with others as he is in this world, so we are. As he is, so we are in this world. But we get to do it only because he first loved us. Only because he first shared his love with us on Calvary. You see, you can't share what you don't have. And if you've never experienced the love of God and salvation for yourself, then you don't have the ability to love God back. Because he is love. He manifested love. It comes from him. And, and I say that because God's love is inextricably tied to his son. He that hath the son hath life. He, ha he that hath not the son of God hath not life. So let me just say from the very beginning of this message and the very beginning of this series, if you've never accepted God's love for you personally through faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ as the payment for your sin, you need to do that today. You need to get saved today. You need to get life today. But assuming most of you in here this morning have already done that at some point in your life, then there's a different message for you. And that message is that since he did love you, and you accepted that love as your own, then you need to get to your part in loving him back. And that's what, that's what 1 John 4 is telling us. That he loved us, now we can love him. Well, how, how do we do that? We love him as we share his love with others. That's the way we love God. But you see, sometimes it seems like we're too busy, too busy loving ourselves to have time to love God. And when we do that, we miss out. Because what I hope you see today is that there is power in the love that we can have for God. That's the title of today's message, The Power of Love. And in today's study, we're going to define for you the parameters that make up a powerful love. We know God's love for us is powerful. It can bring the dead to life. That's how powerful it is. But our love for God has that same potential to tap into and use that same power from on high. And we will see this laid out for us in our text this morning. In Genesis chapter 22, we see the first time that the word love or, or a form of the word love is used in the Bible. In the case you're unaware of the rules of Bible study, I know most of you are probably somewhat aware, but in case you're unaware, there's something called the law of first mention. And, and by the way, if, if you're not aware, you should come to our 9 a.m. class over in the Next Gen Center. We didn't have that today because of the 4th of July weekend, but, but that's exactly what we're going through, our, our rules of Bible study, and we will get to this one. There's a, a rule called the law of first mention. I'll give you a definition. For, again, for many of you, this is review or old hat, but for some of you, it may be the first time you've heard it. So let me give you the definition. The law of first mention is that the first time something is mentioned in the Bible, it generally sets a pattern for how it will be used the rest of the way through the Bible. Now, it's just a principle. There are exceptions to every rule, but, but it will generally hold true. Let me give you an example. The first time we see Satan in the Bible is in Genesis chapter 3, right? It was Adam and Eve and, and, and the garden, and Eve's at the tree of knowledge of good and evil, and, and all of a sudden the serpent shows up. And the first words that come out of his mouth are, Yea, hath God said. Satan comes to Eve at that tree of knowledge of good and evil, and the first thing he does is he questions the clarity and the accuracy of the words of God. Well, that sets a pattern for how Satan operates throughout the rest of the Bible and throughout the rest of history. He makes it his job to get you to doubt what God has said in his word and what God is telling you in your life. And that's the law first mentioned. And like I said a minute ago, Genesis chapter 22 contains the first recorded mention of the word love in the Bible. And so it gives us insight into its meaning. And we can learn from that meaning as, as we see that topic, that uh, the principle of love throughout the rest of the Bible. So let's look at, at it together. Genesis chapter 22. We're going to read the first 12 verses. Verse 1, And it came to pass after these things that God did tempt Abraham and said unto him, Abraham, 
And he said, Behold, here I am. And he said, Take now thy son, thine only son Isaac, whom thou lovest, and get thee into the land of Moriah, and offer him there for a burnt offering upon the mountains, which I will tell thee of. And Abraham rose up early in the morning and saddled his ass and took two of his young men with him and Isaac his son and clave the wood for the burnt offering and rose up and went unto the place of which God had told him. Then on the third day, which is another key term in the Bible you should pay attention to, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place afar off. And Abraham said unto his young men, Abide here with the ass and I and the lad will go yonder and worship and come again unto you. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it upon Isaac his son, and he took the fire in his hand and a knife, and they went both of them together. And Isaac spake unto Abraham his father and said, My father, and he said, Here am I, my son. And he said, Behold, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? And Abraham said, My son, God will provide himself a lamb for a burnt offering. So they went both of them together. And they came to the place which God had told him of, and Abraham built an altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac his son and laid him on the altar upon the wood. And Abraham stretched forth his hand and took the knife to slay his son. And the angel of the Lord called unto him out of heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, Here am I. And he said, Lay not thine hand upon the lad, neither do thou anything unto him. For now I know that thou fearest God, seeing thou hast not withheld thy son, thine only son from me. Let's pray, ask the Lord to direct our time uh, in his word together this morning. Dear Heavenly Father, God, we love you. Uh, we're so thankful for your love, uh, Lord, that, that you showed to us uh, on Calvary's Hill as, as you offered your only son as a payment for our sins. And so, Lord, we're, we're so grateful for that. We're so grateful that you loved us first. And when we accept that love, now we have the opportunity to love you back in the same way. And I, I just pray that, that you show us that this morning, how we can better love you as the Bible defines love. I think sometimes we have a, a, a misunderstanding of what love is because of, of, of the way we define it in our culture. Lord, we want the Bible definition today. So I ask that you give that to us. I pray that everything that is said is true to your word. I pray that it's honoring to you and glorifying to you. And Lord, I pray that it makes us better sons and daughters of you as we learn uh, more and more about what your love is really about. Lord, be with us today, and I, and I pray if there's anyone here that hasn't accepted your love personally, Lord, that they'll meet you today, and they'll understand that you came because of, of, of your love. You sent your son to die for their sins, uh, not only for everybody else's sins, but for their sins, and they'll feel that love today, and they will accept it in faith uh, as the payment for their sins. Lord, we do love you, and we ask you uh, to teach us this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. So Genesis 22 is one of the classic Bible stories that, that we hear about a lot. For If you've been in church long at all, you've probably heard this story before, Abraham and Isaac, and, and it has a very good ending, but it is still quite a sobering story. One where God asked Abraham to sacrifice his son, Isaac. And again, this is the first time we see the form of the word love, and, we're there, and it's there in verse 2, when God said, Take thine only son Isaac, whom thou lovest. And, th and again, this is going to set a pattern for us that, that we're actually going to follow through the rest of the series. So we're going to lay out some points today, and as love is defined here for us in its first mention in Genesis 22, and then that's going to set the pattern for what we're going to see through the rest of the series as we're going to break these down one by one each week. But we see, we see love in Genesis 22. And the love of God we see displayed in Abraham is a love in action. It is a love of action. And like I said, you know, too many times our love, we define love by emotion. And, and there is an aspect of emotion that applies to love, but the true biblical definition of love is a love in action. So you have to understand that when it comes to understanding what true love is. For God so loved the world that he what? He gave. He acted. So when it comes to us loving God back, listen, there are many times on Sunday morning when we are worshiping the Lord and we feel his love and we express our love back to him. Well, that is great. 
But if you don't take that feeling, that emotion that you have on the inside, and if you don't take it out those doors and do something with it, then you really don't love God. Not the way the Bible defines love. You have your own definition of love. So in your mind, yeah, absolutely I love God. Not the way the Bible defines it. That's what we're going to look at today. So I hope you stay with us. So we're going to do it through this story of Abraham and Isaac. And now you probably know a little bit about Abraham, but let me give you the two-minute, two-second version of his life anyway. The life of Abraham takes up a good portion of the Genesis narrative from his first mention in Genesis eleven twenty-six, all the way to his death in Genesis 25, 8. And while we know much about Abraham's life, we, we know very little or actually nothing about his birth and early life. When we first meet Abraham in the Bible, he is already 75 years old. In Genesis chapter 12, God calls Abraham out from his home in Haran, and he tells him to go to a land that he will show him. And in this, in this process, God makes three promises to Abraham. He gives him a promise of his land, a land for his own. There's a promise to be made into a great nation, and the promise of blessing. And now, he goes through a lot more stuff, but for the sake of time and, and getting to the point of our story in Genesis 22, you have to understand what happened with Isaac. Abraham and his wife Sarah were childless. This was a, this was a shame in, in that culture in that day. And yet God promised that Abraham would have a son. And this son would not only be the heir of Abraham's vast fortune with which God had blessed him, but more importantly, this son was going to be the heir of promise. So Abraham believes the promise of God, even though they take a little detour, because he and Sarah try to take things into their own hands when, when they're not seeing it come to fruition. They're not seeing this promise. And so they try to take things into their own hand, and Abraham ends up having a baby, a son, Ishmael, with the handmaid Hagar, but this, with Sarah's handmaid. And so, but despite that, okay, so they get off track for a little bit. But despite that, God reiterates his promise to Abraham in Genesis 17. And then finally, God's promise is realized in Genesis 21 with the birth of Isaac. So this is with Sarah, not with the handmaid. And so Isaac is born in Genesis 21 with Abraham at the young, spry age of 100. So, so get the picture, Abraham going through test after test, waiting all the way until he is 100 years old to have his son of promise. And so quite predictably, this is a son that the Bible says he loves. And I need to point out here, uh, there's, there's, a, there's a phrase in, in Genesis 22 verse 2 that says it was his only son, right? Well, what does that mean? He, he had Ishmael, right? Yes, there's, let me explain it to you. There's no contradiction in your Bible. Yes, he already had Ishmael, but Ishmael was not the son of promise. The Hebrew word for only in our text means unique or only begotten or special. So there's no contradiction because Isaac was Abraham's only begotten son, his only special, unique, and promised Son, we'll get back to that later. I'm, sh I'm sure you know where we're going with that. There's no big surprise there. But that's why the love depicted here is special. It was a unique, deep, indescribable type of love that Abraham had for Isaac. He was a promise from God. He was the promise of God. And now God is asking Abraham to show his love to him, for Abraham to show his love to God by sacrificing this special son whom he loves dearly. Like I said, this is very important for us to understand because this gives us God's definition of love. This gives us the way God looks at love and the way God defines love. And so what comes out of this are key elements for real love. So first, the first key element of real love that we see in Genesis chapter 22 and verse 2 is that real love involves a command. Real love involves a command. Look at verse 2 again. And he, God, said, Take now thy son, thine only son Isaac, whom thou lovest, 
and get thee into the land of Moriah and offer him there for a burnt offering upon one of the mountains, which I will tell thee of. God gives Abraham a command that's tied to showing his love. But what you have to understand is that with any command in the Bible comes a decision. You get to decide whether you are going to obey or not. So there is a command of love, but that command of love requires obedience. That's why in John 14, verse 15, Jesus said, If ye love me, keep my commandments. Pretty straightforward. You and I show God whether we really love him or whether we don't by our decisions. 1 John 5, verses 2 and 3, By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and keep his commandments. For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments. And his commandments are not grievous. And listen, it has always been this way. There has always been a decision to make. You always have a decision to make. Every day, you have a decision to make. And whether you are going to love God with your life and not just your feelings, or you're not. It started that way in the Garden of Eden. Genesis chapter 2, verses 16 and 17. says, And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, Of every tree of the garden thou mayest eat freely, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil thou shalt not eat of it. For in the day that thou eatest thereof thou shalt surely die. You see, the Bible says God commanded the man. And with a command comes a decision. Adam was given all things to richly enjoy except one. One thing and one thing only was reserved for God. And in doing that, God placed before Adam a choice. And it was a necessary choice because Adam could not have been a moral, accountable being without the power to choose. See, God did not make a mechanical race. He made a moral race. And with that comes the right to decide. You have a free will. You get to choose. But from personal experience, I think we all know too well that with that right to decide comes the possibility that the power of choice will be used amiss. That was true of Adam. That is true of us. We show God who we love, what we love every day by the decisions we make and whether we obey him or not. All throughout the Bible, you see God's people being driven to the point of decision. It is unavoidable in your life. We can try to put it off. We can try to keep loving ourselves and God at the same time. But there, there, there comes a point you have to decide. And, and, and I say this all the time, and, and I say it because I mean it. It, it. it strikes something in me. I mean, praise the Lord. God is the God of second chances and third chances and 20th chances and 100th chance. Praise the Lord that he is. But there is a last chance. We never know when that is. There is a last chance. And so make the choice today. Make the choice today to do what's right. And we can try to put it off. But you're going to be faced with it at some point. Let me give you some examples. In Exodus 32, after Moses had come down off of Mount Sinai from meeting with God, getting the tables of testimony written with the finger of God, he sees how Israel had fallen into wicked idolatry. And he's dealing with them and the fallout of their sin. And in Exodus 32, verse 26, he draws a line in the sand and he forces the Israelites into the making a decision. Of where their love resides. The Bible says in Exodus 32, 26, Then Moses stood in the gate of camp and said, Who is on the Lord's side? Let him come unto me. So Moses is forceful in his stand for God and in his love for God, and he forces a decision in Israel's face by asking a question. He said, Who is on the Lord's side? Here's the line. If you're on the Lord's side, come over here, because that's where I'm at. And if you're not, stay there. Let's at least know. Let's at least be honest. Because that's not us, man. 
We want everybody to think we're on the Lord's side when we're always on our own side, man. Here's the line. If you love yourself and you love your own desires and your flesh, stay where you are. But you have to decide. He said, too much craziness has gone on to keep the status quo. Who do you love? And Christian, listen to me now. With all the craziness going on in our world, government, whatever, even worse, all the craziness going on in our churches, I believe God is standing in our gate and asking us, whose side are you on? I believe we're living in the last days. I believe that God is calling on us to affirm or deny our allegiance to him and asking us if we love him. Joshua makes the same plea when he gathers the nation of Israel together at the end of his life and he's given them what he feels are the most important things he has to say to them before he leaves this earth. This is shortly before his death. And he gets down to verse 14. And, and, and many of you have this, this verse, verse 15, uh, uh, on your, in your house somewhere. And it says, Now therefore fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and in truth, and put away the gods which your father served on the other side of the flood and in, 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 and in Egypt, and serve ye the Lord. And if it seems evil unto you to serve the Lord, choose you this day whom you will, whom you will serve, whether the gods which your father served that were on the other side of the flood. There's a line he's drawn. Was it them or here? Serve the, the gods which your father served that were on the other side of the flood, or the gods of the Amorites in whose land ye dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Amen. Joshua lays it out very clearly for them. But what I want you to see is the underlying assumption in Joshua's statement, which is you will make a choice. Joshua doesn't go through a list and say, or, you know, third, you could just choose to serve nothing at all. No. The assumption is you're going to serve something. So make it God. Choose God. It's just like with Moses. Who is on the Lord's side? Choose you this day whom you will serve. Jesus said it this way in Matthew 6, 24. No man can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will hold to the one and despise the other. Ye cannot, ye cannot, ye cannot serve God and mammon. Brothers and sisters, I believe it's time for us to take a stand for Jesus. I believe it's time for us to get off the fence and move over to the Lord's side. It's exactly what Elijah was saying to Israel in 1 Kings 18, 21. And Elijah came unto all the people and said, How long halt ye between two opinions? If the Lord be God, follow him. But if Baal, then follow him. Listen to this next phrase. And the people answered him, not a word. Why? They wanted both. They wanted both, just like we want both. We want to serve God and Baal. We want to love God and ourselves. We want to love Jesus and the world. You can't have it both ways. I'm sorry. It's what the Bible says. They answered him not a word, but listen, that doesn't matter. That is not good enough is you have to make a choice, and you will make a choice. In the nation of Israel, they went from leader to leader, prophet to prophet, dealing with the same issues, whether they loved God more than they loved themselves. And Elijah says, quit trying to play both sides. Stop trying to live with one foot in the world and one foot out. It doesn't work that way. And now I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, man, those Israelites sure were a bunch of idiots. Goodness, all those were Old Testament passages. And while that's true, I must warn you, I'm not done. Because Paul tells us in Romans 6, verses 1 and 2, what shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid. How shall we that are dead to sin live any longer therein? You know what Paul is asking? He's asking who's on the Lord's side. He's drawing a line in the sand like Moses is saying, choose which side you will stand on. Are you going to live in sin or live for God? A.W. Tozer, one of my favorite pastors, lived in the early 1900s, died in like 1960, says, whoever is on God's side is on the winning side and cannot lose. 
Whoever's on the other side is on the losing side and cannot win. Here there is no chance, no gamble. There is freedom to choose which side we shall be on, but no freedom to negotiate the results of the choice once it's made. By the mercy of God, we may repent a wrong choice and alter the consequences by making a new and right choice. Beyond that, we cannot go. You're going to choose. Choose wisely. But Paul didn't stop there in Romans chapter 6, because you remember what we saw uh, him say during our study in 1 Corinthians? 1 Corinthians 10, verses 21 and 22. says you cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of devils. You cannot be partakers of the Lord's table and of the table of devils. Do we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he? You know what Paul is saying there? He's saying, choose you this day whom you will serve. And then God himself gives us the same message speaking through John to the church of Laodicea, which within the parameters of church history represents the church of our age, the church period we live in today. And if if that doesn't make sense to you, that's okay. Just just keep showing up, keep studying your Bible. Come to 9 a.m. You'll learn these things. But in Revelation chapter 3, verses 14 and 15, God says to us, And unto the angel of the church of Laodicea is right. These things say of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation God. I know thy works, that thou art neither cold nor hot. I would that thou wert cold or hot. You know what God is asking you and me from this passage this morning? He's asking, how long halt ye between two opinions? When are you going to choose me over all the other stuff you have going on in your life? See, real love requires a decision of obedience. God always allows you to choose. But that means there's always a choice to make. You don't get away with scooting by without choosing. It doesn't work that way. It doesn't matter that you choose to say not a word. Because when you don't say a word, you just made a choice. Former President Ronald Reagan, he told a story about how he had an aunt who once took him to a shoemaker for a pair of new shoes. And the shoemaker asked young Reagan, he asked him if he wanted square-toed shoes or rounded-toed shoes. And and he couldn't decide, and so the shoemaker said, all right, I'll give you a couple days. Um, just let me know what you want. And he, he couldn't decide, and he, he was going back there, and, and they ran into each other on the street. And, and he, he just he, he didn't know, so he just said, just, just give me whatever you think. You know, I, I don't want to decide. You just give me whatever you think. So he said, all right, give me a couple days, and, and I'll have your shoes done and come on back. And so he, do, he did, and he comes back, and when he walks in, he and gives him his shoes, one has a square toe, one has a round toe. <laughs> and he said, the shoemaker said to him, this will teach you to never let other people make decisions for you. And Reagan later said, I learned right then and there, if you don't make your own decisions, someone else will. And that principle is true spiritually as well. If you don't make a decision, God and the devil will make it for you. And I promise you that you won't like the result. So choose, but choose the route Abraham took, the route of obedience, because did you see what verse 3 says in Genesis 22? After he told him to sacrifice his only son, whom he lovest, verse 3, and Abraham rose up early in the morning and saddled his ass and took two of his young men with him and Isaac his son and clave the wood from the burnt offering and rose up and went unto the place of which God had told him. See, Abraham didn't question, and he didn't delay. He obeyed, and he obeyed promptly, and he obeyed directly. He went exactly where he said. And even when it was a command from God that didn't make any sense at all in our worldly wisdom, it was still a command from God. And that was enough for Abraham. That should be enough for us, too. So first, real love involves a command that requires obedience. Then the second key element of real love is real love involves a cost. You see, when it comes to using God's love for us, the love that God showed us on Calvary, we love God because he first loved us, and then we use that to love him back. 
You use it as a means to loving him back. It, you, it's a decision. It's a, it's a decision to obey or not. But you have to know that there's a cost that comes with that decision. There's a cost that comes with any decision to obey. Look at Genesis 22.2 again. We've read it a bunch of times. We're going to keep reading it. He said, Take now thy son, thine only son Isaac, whom thou lovest, and get thee into the land of Moriah, and offer him there for a burnt offering upon one of the mountains, which I will tell thee of. See, God was testing Abraham's faith and Abraham's love by asking him to sacrifice his own son. And that's a very big cost, because the cost is death. So in the same way the command of love requires obedience, the cost of love requires death. And applying that to our life today, it means death to self and dying to our flesh. Romans 6.6 6, Knowing this, that our old man is crucified with him, that the body of sin might be destroyed, that henceforth we should not serve sin. Our old man is crucified with him. That body of sin is now destroyed. Galatians 6.14 says, But God forbid that I should glory, save in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom the world is crucified unto me, and I unto the world. Galatians 2.20 says, I am crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live. And in the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Listen, we've been called to die to ourselves and to live unto God. It's why you can't halt between two opinions. It's why you can't serve God and mammon too. To love God, you have to die to yourself. This is how the Bible defines it. Real love involves a cost of death. And Paul, like Paul said in Galatians 6.14, our focus should be on the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. That was this means of death. And that cross is a picture of how we are to die, just as he died. Luke 14, 27, And whosoever doth not bear his cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. You see, the cost of loving God for real, as the Bible defines it, includes a willingness to die. You have to bear or shoulder your cross. That means you are willing to be in public display. That's crucifixions happened in public. They're a public display. That you're identified with Jesus Christ in every single area of life. And in reality, you have exchanged your life for his. It means dying and then serving. So let me ask you, are you willing to run up Calvary's hill to be with Christ? Because it's a decision that involves death. Because try this. Take your cross to work. See what promotion it gets you. Try to live a moral life in this world and see what the cross gets you. But here's the thing. According to Luke 14, 27, you cannot be his true disciple without the cross. You can't. And exchanging your life for Christ is a one-way journey. You're going to die to self. That means you cannot turn around without denying Christ. It's like that old song, we learned it when we were kids, says, I've decided to follow Jesus. No turning back, no turning back. Though no one joined me, still I will follow. No turning back, no turning back. The world behind me, the cross before me. No turning back, no turning back. Once you decide to be a true disciple, there's no turning back. And if you make that decision, you have to take up your cross. And cross involves death. And so your cross might mean sorrow, and your cross might mean rejection, and your cross might mean pain, but that is the cost of love. John 15, 13 says, Greater love hath no man than this, that a man lay down his life for his friends. And the other John 3.16 tells us this too. This one is 1 John 3.16. Hereby perceive we the love of God, 
because he laid down his life for us. How do we know that God loved us? Because he laid down his life for us. What's that mean to us? We ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. Real love involves a cost. And that cost requires death. This is a real happy message this morning, isn't it? You came, listen, I, we fooled you. It was like the love of God. You're like, oh man, this is going to be great. We're just going to hear about the love of God. Just let the blessings flow down upon me. And that is very true. But there's a real aspect about love that we got to learn this morning. It starts to turn, I promise. Real love involves a cost that requires death, but then third, real love involves consecration. Look again at verse 4. Then on the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place afar off. This is the place that, that God had told him. And Abraham said unto his young men, abide, he, abide ye here with the ass, and I and the lad will go yonder and worship and come again unto you. And now this is where things start to turn. And this is where the story gets good. Because here we really get to see Abraham's love through his consecration to God. Because while Abraham's love and our love starts with obedience, we have to decide, it's a command, and we're going to decide whether we obey or not. That's where it starts. It, our, our love for God ultimately is not only about obedience. Ultimately, it's about worship. And because of Abraham's love of God through his consecration, he was consecrated to what God loved. He was committed to doing what God wanted him to do. So, and through the love of God, through his consecration to God, the act of sacrificing his son was an act of worship to Abraham. And I'm not sure we can even really grasp that in our Laodicean American minds. I can't. But real love involves consecration, and that consecration of real love requires worship. Abraham said he and Isaac were going yonder and worship. And he was fully intending on sacrificing his son. And you say, listen, there's something not right about that. That, that is not right. Let me ask you this. Was it right when God himself did the exact same thing for you? You see, when it comes to our love for God, because of God's love for us, worship needs to be the ultimate motivation. You're going to do what he says just because he said it. And so obedience then, you obey that command, that becomes a means to worship. So it doesn't stop with obedience. You obey because he's, because he's God and, and, and you, and you want to love him and, and you want to do what he says. But it doesn't stop at obedience. Now, that is the means, that is the pathway to worship. Ultimately, that's what it has to be about. It's about worship and not obedience. And, and, and you're going to do it. You're going to do what he says because he said it, because you want to worship him. And interestingly enough, we don't have time to get into this, but this is the first mention of the word worship, too. Genesis 22 is a very important chapter in your Bible. So like I said, we don't have time to dive into that, but in the same way we're learning what love means through its first mention, you can do the same with worship. Because worship is really about giving all that you got. And to Abraham, Isaac was everything. Now let me define it this way. Worship is all that I am, paying homage or giving honor to all that God is. The best verse, I think, we define worship in the Bible, Psalm 29, 2. Give unto the Lord the glory due unto his name. Worship the Lord in the beauty of his holiness. So worship has to do with recognizing God as God with your life. That's consecration. And it's consecration because worship is truly the purpose of the believer's life. Proverbs 16, 4. It's like, well... Uh, we'll get to Proverbs 16, 4 in just a second, but let me, let me say something to that. So worship is ultimately the purpose. So we obey 
we share the love of God. We have a mission, right? There's the, we'll, we'll talk about this in future weeks. And there is the, the great commission that we've been given, and it is to, to go make disciples. So we evangelize, we make disciples, we baptize, we, we do these in the name of the Lord. Why do we do that? Because that is the path that God laid out for us to worship him. Because ultimately, we were created to worship him. Now again, we have a free will. We get to choose whether we're going to do it or not. It starts with obedience. It leads to worship. You have to understand that obedience is, is, is going to cost you something. And die to yourself, and it gives you the opportunity to now worship him. You can't worship without obeying. You can't worship without dying. This is, this, these are steps on a path. And so then it gives you the opportunity to worship him with your life, which you were created to do. Proverbs 16, 4 says, The Lord hath made all things for himself, yea, even the wicked for the day of evil. Romans eleven thirty six For of him and through him and to him are all things. We are part of all things. To whom be glory forever, amen. Revelation 4.11, I mean, you know, we talk about purpose. This is, one of the, this is one of the biggest questions, right, for people today. Man, what is the meaning of life? Why am I here? What is the purpose of life? Revelation 4.11 gives the answer in clearest forms. Thou art worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power, for thou hast created all things. Why? And for thy pleasure they are and were created. You want to know what your purpose in life is? It's to give God pleasure. How do you do that? By worship. You do it through worship. That's the purpose of life. Next time someone asks you, man, what's the, man, what's the meaning of life? Take them to Revelation 4.11. It's the clearest answer you can give. So how can you say that you love God if you don't worship God with your life? I mean, come on, man. If worship of God isn't your ultimate motivation for how you live your life and the decisions you make, then your love for God isn't like it should be. I don't know how else to say it. And trust me, listen, I'm right there with you. I get it. Because I certainly don't know if my consecration is on the same level of Abraham's. I mean, that is worship on another level. And I look at that. I have two sons. I don't, I don't want to ever get that request from God. But, that's a, but that level of worship, giving our life to God in all, deciding that we're going to do it, obeying no matter what the cost, that's the path to worship, which is what you were created to do. So that's the level we should be striving for. So real love involves a command. It involves a cost. It involves a consecration, a consecrated life. But there's one more key element. And this is number four. Real love involves a confidence. Real love involves a confidence. You see, there was a confidence that Abraham displayed in this test of his life. And you have to get this. Look at verse 5 again. And Abraham said unto his young men, Abide ye here with the ass, and I and the lad will go yonder and worship and come again unto you. So he tells the, the two young men that he brought with him, um, he tells them to hang out here. Stay here. Isaac and I are going to go worship. And then, you, you, you know, just read it, but you've got to see that last phrase in that verse. We're going to go yonder and worship and come again unto you. Abraham believed that they would both return. And that because of the confidence, it, he, he was able to have that confidence because of his faith in the Lord's promise. He knew the promise that he had received from God. So he placed his confidence in that promise that a great nation was to come through Isaac. And Abraham had confidence because he had faith. So real love involves confidence. And that confidence of real love requires faith. If you want to be able to have confidence in where you're going because of where God's taking you and the promises that you have in this book, you want to be able to believe and trust and rest in that. You have to have the faith that's required. Come back to Genesis 22 and we'll, we'll bring this to a close. 
Now, so let me just save a little bit of time and paraphrase kind of the, this, this story for you. Abraham obeys God, takes his son up, up Mount Moriah to the mount that he's told, and he prepares to sacrifice Isaac to God. And as he was getting ready to bring the knife down to slay his son, he was going to obey. He was confident. He had confidence, but he was going to obey. Look at what happens. Genesis 22, verses 11 and 12. And the angel of the Lord called unto him out of heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here am I. I mean, listen, I don't know how he said, here am I, but I bet he goes, yeah, 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 here I am. I'm here, I'm here, here am I, here am I. I'm here, I'm listening. You got, you got something to say? And he said, lay not thine hand upon the lad, neither do thou anything unto him, for now I know that thou fearest God, seeing thou hast not withheld thy son, thine only son, from me. So God sweeps in in the nick of time. He tested Abraham's faith, Abraham's love. Abraham proved himself out. He proved his love for God. But the thing you have to see is, is it was because of his faith. Abraham knew that as hard as that decision was to make, and that that decision involved death, that if he made it, it would lead to him having access to divine power through the love of Almighty God. Because look at what the Bible says in Hebrews chapter 11, verses 17 and 19. It says, By faith Abraham, when he was tried, offered up Isaac. And he that had received the promises offered up his only begotten son, who was the promise, of whom it was said that in Isaac shall thy seed be called. And how could he do this? Where was his faith? Where was the confidence? He was accounting. He, Abraham was accounting that God was able to raise him up even from the dead, from whence also he received him in a figure. You see that? Abraham knew that he was going to gain access to divine power because he trusted that if God did have him go through with sacrificing his son, that, he, that God would raise Isaac from the dead. That's where his confidence lies. He knew that it was okay as hard as it might be because resurrection power is available through God. And listen to me. If you make the decision to obey God and to die to yourself in order to live for God and to worship Him with all your life and you hold fast in your faith, then divine resurrection power is available to you as well. That's what Paul, that, the whole story of Romans chapter 6, that's what it's about. We read a few of those verses earlier. Look down in verse 5. Paul says, For if we have been planted together in the likeness of his death, we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection. We saw this picture in the baptism, baptisms this morning. Knowing this, that our old man is crucified with him, that the body of sin might be destroyed, and henceforth we should not serve sin. For he that is dead is freed from sin. Now, if we be dead with Christ, we believe, we have confidence, we have faith that we shall also live with him, knowing that Christ being raised, raised from the dead dieth no more. Death hath no more dominion over him. For in that he died, he died unto sin once. But he that liveth, he liveth unto God. Likewise, because of all this, reckon, decide, determine ye also yourselves to be dead indeed unto sin, but alive unto God through Jesus Christ our Lord. That is resurrection power. You are alive unto God and freed from the bondage of sin, and you are now able to bring Him glory with your life. You are able to be pleasing in His sight. You bring Him pleasure as you were created to. You are drawn close to Him in a personal relationship that is built on reverence and worship to Almighty God instead of self-serving lip service. Listen, Calvary expresses the love of God, but the resurrection explains the power of God. And when you decide to love Him like that, resurrection power becomes real to you. But you can't have it without faith. Think about the Apostle Paul and everything he experienced, everything he accomplished for the Lord, all his, his exploits for the Lord. When it came down to it, look at what he said his, his biggest desire was in Philippians 3.10, that I may know him 
and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being made conformable unto his death. Paul said, above all, I just want to know him. And listen, to know God is to love God. There is no other way around it. And when you love God, you have access to his resurrection power as you make yourself conformable unto his death. And this concept is all throughout the Bible because it is a picture of God's greatest work of all, his only son, Jesus Christ. It is what God set up for us to see because it is, God, it is how God loved us. It is how, according to 1 John 4, he manifested, he showed, he declared his love to us. Go back to Genesis 22 with me for just a second and we'll be done. And we skipped over this earlier, but I want you to look at verse 8 in Genesis 22. Abraham and Isaac were setting up the altar for the sacrifice. And Isaac turns and says, where's the lamb for the sacrifice? Very likely by this time knowing it was supposed to be him. But look at the beautiful words of verse 8. Many of you know this, but this is so beautiful. And it's one of the many things that makes your King James Bible so perfect. Genesis 22, 8, And Abraham said, My son, God will provide himself a lamb for a burnt offering. So they went both of them together. I, I assume you caught that, but let me read it one more time. The Bible says, And Abraham said, My son, God will provide himself a lamb. John 1, 29, says the next day, John seeth Jesus coming unto him and saith, Behold, the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sin of the world. You see, really, the story of Genesis 22 was never about Isaac. And while God was testing Abraham's faith and Abraham's love and, and, and gave that to us to understand love and to find love for us, it really wasn't even about Abraham. It was about God setting up and picturing the greatest Love story of all time. It was about John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, his special, unique, and precious son, so that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. He wants us to believe that. He wants us in faith to accept that. And then he wants us to love him back because of that. Love him in the same way he loved us. The same way Jesus loved us, which was obeying a command that his father had given him. He said, not my will, but thine. And he obeyed a command that cost him his life, that he died. Why? So that he could worship his father through that ultimate sacrifice. But the great thing is he didn't stay dead. On the third day, which is when Abraham went, by the way, on the third day, he rose again. And because of that, we now get to experience that love. And we get to love him back by taking that message to the world as we obey the Great Commission, as we decide to die to ourselves, as we decide to put him first in our life and worship him with our life. But listen, that cost of death in the midst of, of dying to ourselves, he is able to bring us out in newness of life. There is no better life than what he offers so that, that cost of death is only death of the flesh. And we get to live unto him in a power that you can't experience any other way. He just wants us to believe it. He wants us to love him back. And when you do, he will resurrect you and resurrect your life in the exact same way he resurrected his son. And you may be down and out now, but God and his resurrection power will bring you out. And it will take you where you've never been before. It will give you a new focus and a new outlook on life. It's yours if you want it. But listen, in order to be resurrected, you have to be dead. 
So real love involves a command that requires obedience, a cost that requires death, a consecration that requires worship, and a confidence that requires faith. That's how you are to love God, because that is the definition of love. And we know that because that's how God loved us. That's what I just explained. I'll say it one more time. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Let's all begin loving God the way he deserves, because there is no doubt he loves us way better than we deserve. I'm going to pray, and the praise team is going to come back up, and we'll close out the service with one final song. We're going